everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you here. And with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Brandon Odo, who's a new dad. Uh, he's sleep deprived, but here to run a great case for us. Also with us is Dr. Ron Barbosa. Dr. Barbosa is a trauma surgeon from Legacy Emanuel Hospital in Portland, which is a big level one trauma center out there. And he's the medical director of their trauma ICU. We're going to be talking about rib plating and really all things rib fracture, for which he has a lot of experience doing this. Uh, and I think this is something that is, uh, I, I see a fair amount of, even though I don't do trauma, um, but I think rib fractures certainly are a potentially big deal um, that I think are probably underappreciated. All right. So you are covering the trauma service and you hear from one of your residents about a 71-year-old male who just turned up in the ED there. He has a history of some diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and he, he tripped and had a fall at home. He kind of fell down this little flight of about four stairs. Um, he says he, he didn't lose consciousness or anything. He didn't, didn't think he hit his head. He thinks he just tripped over a, a fringe of some carpet. But he had a hard time getting back up, so he was down for maybe an hour until somebody came and brought him to the emergency department. In the ED, he gets the trauma workup, uh, gets pan scanned, and... His injuries are most significant for a number of rib fractures. Um, his left side, he has posterior fractures of ribs four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. So four through nine. And several of them, four through seven, are fractured in two different places and really quite displaced. There are some fractures on the right, um, five through seven, not so displaced there. Uh, the left side also has a mild pulmonary contusion underlying that area of injury. And there's a, a small pleural effusion consistent with the hemothorax. Other than that, there's a, a distal radius fracture seen on plane films. He has a, a little, uh, just some kind of ecchymosis and bruising of his chest wall and otherwise seems to be okay. He has a, a clean CT of his spine. He's hemodynamically stable. So just walk me through just in general, a patient like this, not having seen them at all, but just on paper, kind of what's your, your basic schema and approach to someone like this who has rib fractures, perhaps a number of them, and that's really their primary injury pattern? Well, probably before you get to the actual management of the fractures themselves is to, you know, consider if there are any other injuries um, and you've pan scanned them, but a lot of times they will have had partial scans or plain films. Um, the left posterior lower rib fractures are textbook for a spleen injury, obviously. Um, so if they haven't been scanned, then if they've had a plain film rib series, for example, which still exists, then you can consider getting a CT. If the CT, if as often happens, it's just been a CT of the chest, then you know we would look at the images to see whether it's good enough. A CT of the chest, for example, will usually continue on low enough to see the spleen and liver well enough to be able to tell whether there's anything there. So it's not very common that we would have to 
scan again for that. Um, but assuming, like you said, in this case, they've been pan scanned and it really is just the ribs and the things that you mentioned, um, then it mostly goes from, well, the first thing is to decide where you're going to put the patient, where, you know, whether it be in an ICU or a step down unit, if that exists in your hospital or a regular ward. So what's your approach to that decision? Well, there was what was the approach to that decision, and there's what is the approach today. So the the historically, and by historically I mean not very long ago, there were people developed criteria for who should go to the ICU, and it and it it was based on some combination of age and number of root fractures, usually, and, and then of course obvious things like the saturation. But you know, people wrote protocols that said things like patients that were over 65, if they had more than three refractors, then they should go to the ICU. And those are great in theory, in a theoretic hospital that has capacity. Uh, but if your hospitals are anything like our hospitals, and they probably are, then ICU capacity is always at a premium. And uh, so we don't have the luxury of just sending every person that fits the criteria to the ICU. So very often we're having to send, so the criteria are kind of I don't want to say out the window, but uh, don't necessarily reflect, you know, the reality of what the ICU capacity is. But but so why why would a patient like this go to the ICU? I mean, what would be the potential need for the ICU? Um, right. So that I mean, I always, as I always like to point out, there's really only two reasons to be in an ICU. Uh, reason number one, because something is happening, and reason number two, because something could happen. And so this, this fits under the reason number two, something could happen. So, you know, they're at risk for deterioration from a respiratory standpoint and needing some kind of either BiPAP or intubation and, and regular mechanical ventilation. So that's always a risk, especially in this age group. So a patient like this, you said there's kind of older uh, algorithms for it, but I mean, what would your approach be? You know, when would you send them to the ICU and when would you not? Is it purely a matter of clinical judgment? Do you have any rules to it? Uh, it's for us. It's essentially clinical judgment. Um, you know, we formerly had rules, uh, which I believe were over sixty-five and over three rib fractures, but. It's for the reasons that we went over before. We've long ago had to give that up, uh, just because for you know capacity reasons alone. And then for us, you know, here's where it depends on your hospital. We have a essentially a step down unit, uh, a, a particular ward that is capable of a, a higher degree of vigilance and monitoring than than the rest of the wards. And so we can send a lot of the patients to to that place instead of uh, the regular ward. And it's, it's not an ICU, but it's, it's not a regular ward either. And a lot of hospitals don't have that. But we, uh, we fortunately do. We can take advantage of that. Do you find that patients like this, I mean, like you said, you're essentially watching and waiting to see if their, their breathing or their oxygenation gets worse. If they do get worse, is it usually suddenly? In other words, if you're watching them in some non-ICU setting, um, can you see that they're gradually getting worse and eventually say, all right, we should probably move to the ICU? Or is there a risk if they're in some less monitored setting, they can sort of all of a sudden get sick and then maybe not be uh, 
you know, responded to with enough alacrity. Well, that's always the risk, right? That, you know, that that could happen. I think probably the deterioration is gradual most of the time. Whether or not it's recognized early or not is another thing. It may seem acute, you know, when the person is having a rapid response called on the floor or something, but really the problem has been brewing for a number of hours and, and only when the team gets in there and gets an ABG, for example, and the PCO2 is 110, you know, is it, is it realized that it's really been a problem for, for hours now? Okay. So it sounds like a lot of this depends on, on your setting and how much monitoring people can get in, in different venues. Um, and, you know, everyone has to probably develop their own approaches, whether that's algorithms or policies or, or just their own judgment. Um, would you put this patient as described in the ICU or you would need to know a little more? Uh, that one's, yeah, very strong on the eyeball test there. The, um, I'd probably want to put him in the ICU if I had space. And the, the things that make me think that there is a combination of his age and then the, we know that some of his rear fractures are in two places and significantly displaced. Uh, so that, that puts him at risk for deterioration there much more so than, you know, than the diabetes and hypertension and coronary artery disease, for example. So uh, the, the ED also feels like just in their judgment, he should probably be in the ICU. So between all this, he does get sent up to you. And um, you see him there, and what you see is this gentleman, as described, who um, is wearing a non-rebreather mask. He, he was somewhat hypoxic in the ER. Uh, and on uh, 100% oxygen, quote 100%, and he's sitting in the low 90s. When you talk to him and take a look, he definitely is having significant pain with breathing, um, certainly if he tries to, to breathe more deeply or, or cough. You give him a spirometer, he can inspire maybe 300 cc's. Um, you take a look at his chest, there's certainly tenderness uh, to that injured area, especially on the left. Um, there's not really an obvious flail segment that you can appreciate, though. So this guy is, is sitting in your ICU now. Um, what are, the, what are the things you're going to do? You know, what, what orders are you having your team write other than routine housekeeping things? Well, we're always big on what's called multimodal pain management. So we realized some years ago that just giving everyone a lot of narcotic you know, led to problems. And so it became safer to use a, a number of separate medications rather than just a lot of narcotics. So and people's regimens tend to be fairly similar, so that it's very often a, co a combination of some narcotic, oxycodone, for example, along with um, gabapentin, and usually methylcarbamol, um, some kind of NSAID if they're allowed that, and then lidocaine patches, uh, which we can get into. Their lidocaine patches are now the effect is modest. But it's something we can. It's it's also fairly harmless. We can put that on there. So that's what most people get. And then the big question becomes, who needs more than that for patients that seem to be feeling multimodal therapy um, and who are only pulling 300 on the IS, like you said? Then the big question is whether or not to get an epidural. And for those of us that are old enough to remember the old days, you know, it was hard to get that. And then. Uh, study after study showed that the effect was dramatic, and so the. The anesthesia services increasingly felt that they something that they really should offer, and so I think most places now have that 
availability. So would he or would he not be a candidate for an epidural would be the main question. Okay. So pretty much everyone you're giving um, an NSAID if there's no contraindication. You said gabapentin and uh, robaxin, uh, methocarbamol, a muscle relaxer. Uh, did you say acetaminophen? Yeah, that too. Okay. Um, and then some sort of opioid, uh, perhaps oral, maybe something IV as well. Do you go to PCAs here? PCA is, yeah, that's popular. For patients who are, are able to use a PCA, that's a good option. Anything besides a fentanyl PCAs, in my opinion. Um, to this day, I struggle to understand why they were invented. Um, it's it's too short acting and no one really seems to like it. So so for me anyway, if I'm going to write for a PCA, it'll, it'll always be either morphine or Dilaudid and pra- practically never fentanyl. So by and large, the opioid strategy is uh, lots of ways you could skin the cat here. Uh, some combination of oral drugs, IV, PCAs, maybe not a fentanyl PCA, but uh, it's against a background of non-opioid agents. Um, you know, most people, at least in school, or if you ask the pharmacist, would say gabapentin and uh, methocarbamol are, you know, really for neuropathic pain and for muscle spasm, respectively. Um, are either of those present here, or is the goal here just to kind of give them something to attack every pathway you could think of, um, hoping that it's, you know, the risk-benefit favors that or we're giving them more opioid? Yeah, it's more the latter. I mean, the, you know, the in the interest of hitting every receptor, and to an extent, some of it probably will be neuropathic pain, you know, and muscle spasm, you know, because after all, the inter- you know, intercostal nerves are affected. Muscle spasm is a little bit harder to uh, parse out so than it is for an extremity, for example. So I think I think patients that get muscle spasm from their femur fractures are able to describe, you know, a pattern of symptoms that sounds very much like spasm. But for those that are getting it from chest wall injury, it's not quite as straightforward as that. Um, but we give it, and it seems to it seems to really be helpful. And uh, afterwards, when they get out of the hospital and they're an outpatient, they seem to want to take the Robaxin uh, longer than some of the other stuff, even. Okay, and you think that is a a better or safer or more effective muscle relaxer than some of the other options? It is very helpful to, you know, when you get on a, a large trauma service, for example, that has many providers, um, to pick a thing, you know, because if it's a, if it's a free for all and everyone picks whatever they want, whether it's flexoril or Robaxin or whatever, then it, it just gets too confusing. Okay. So these are the things you're giving most people. And then if they continue to have Pain and difficulty breathing, you would strongly consider a thoracic epidural to improve their pain relief. Is that kind of your your basic step step one and step two? For us and for a lot of places, you know, the, those are really the two main things. And then there exist some uh, other methods, you know, that are only at select hospitals. For example, there's a there's a device called an on cue pump. Which is basically uh, you basically take this metal spear, if you will, and use it to guide a small catheter into the t- soft tissue of the chest wall. 
next to the fractures. And then, and then, you know, there's a little plastic bulb that in, will instill local anesthetic through these catheters near the chest wall, and that's called an, an on-cue pump. So the the idea of giving an epidural maybe could more broadly be described as, you know, doing some sort of regional or neuraxial anesthesia, but the exact methods may depend on the people doing these, you know, the anesthesia folks at your center and, and what they're into and what they're good at and so on. Right, and, you know, and they will, you know, of course it's not just an order that you write, you know, it's a, it's a consult, if you will. And so when the anesthesia pain person comes by, you know, they'll have their own opinions also about whether or not an epidural is needed. And so sometimes they'll come by and, and say, well, this person doesn't really seem to be doing poorly enough to warrant an epidural. Or they may have opinions about whether or not the refractions are too high for an epidural to really work. And then um, if there are any spine fractures, uh, for example, so they'll often have an opinion about whether transverse process fractures or minimal compression fractures, whether those are contraindications to an epidural or not. Okay. Now, um, if you're considering an epidural, um, depending on if you've given them anticoagulation, that could be a contraindication. Do you give any consideration to um, your DBT prophylaxis in a patient like this who kind of may or may not be getting an epidural? Well, yeah, so we change that um, to a, a daily dosing as opposed to a BID if someone's on that. And, you know, it's one of the first things they check when they come by for um, a consult is, you know, when the anoxaparin has been given. And so if they need to come back in a few hours because it's, you know, it was given too recently, then they will. And then when an epidural is in place, they'll have us go to a Q-day dosing so that uh, when it comes time to take the epidural out, that they can do that. When yep. you admit these people, do you just hold off giving them any chemoprophylaxis if there's kind of a reasonable chance you're going to go for an epidural in the first, whatever, 24 hours? Or Occasionally, you know, uh, and obviously it's everyone's goal to start chemoprophylaxis as soon as they can, it seems like. But if there's someone who's very obviously headed towards getting an epidural, then we might hold off for a day. But uh, if it's not very obvious, then we'll usually just start it. Okay. Now, if you have a patient like this who, you know, you're not doing great with his rib fractures, some trouble breathing, but you're doing all these things, you're trying to squeak them by, obviously, you know, the final stage would be intubating them, but you'd rather not. How do you know when they're not going to get any worse? You know, what's the timeline of this? Is there a certain amount of time after the injury when you could say, you know, he's probably out of the woods now? You know, because essentially, like you said, you're watching them to make sure nothing bad happens. You know, when are you done with that? There's not a, a specific timeline, actually, and, and they can deteriorate, you know, a week later, 10 days later. Um, I mean, they'll certainly have pain from the fractures themselves for months, uh, but a person can certainly do okay for a number of days, go out to the ward for a number of days, and then afterwards have a problem. Especially if, uh, and that's not always from the fractures themselves, they might uh, very well have a problem from that small pleural effusion, which is no longer a small pleural effusion, but now it's a moderate to large one. And that's very common um, for that to happen. 
in for the okay, so there can, there can be delayed deterioration, but still, you know, a patient like this, you bought him into the ICU to watch him. How long do you watch him? I mean, let's say he kind of continues to look as he is looking uh, in a day, a couple days, three days. At some point, he has to leave the ICU. Yeah, and that can, that can just be according to standard criteria. So it's not like, you know, a high-grade liver laceration, for example, where there's a X number of days that you must be in the ICU. Um, for rib fractures, you know, there's not a certain number of days. And so if, so if he's 75 years old and there's, I think we've got nine rib fractures according to the count here and, and he looks great the next morning, then he doesn't have to obligatorily stay there just because he hasn't been there enough number of days. So it depends how sick they are at baseline and on, on their trajectory, right? I mean, if you're still doing a, a lot of things and maybe escalating what you're doing, then that's probably not the time to de-escalate their level of care. Right. Okay. So he's got his epidural. He's on some high flow nasal oxygen, maybe here and there. He's taking some breaks on CPAP or BiPAP. Um, but, you know, he's still not looking amazing and still having a lot of pain and he's just not able to get good breaths for you. Is there an option to surgically repair these fractures? And if so, kind of what's your mental approach to that decision? Well, so the, 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 the short answer to that, to that is maybe. Surgical fixation of ribs or like SSRF is the official uh, abbreviation, but I'll call it rib plating because it sounds better. Uh, obviously, it exists. It has existed for a long time, but it hasn't really taken off until you know the last ten years or so. Um, can be done, in you know, depending on clinical factors like whether they need it, and then uh, equally important are the anatomic factors. So there's a lot of thinking that goes into how, how, the, how the ribs can be reached, whether they can be reached, you know, where, so you can't fix every rib, for example. You have to look at the, those ribs that are, that can be fixed and, and do the patient's fractures fit that pattern. So for example, the, you can't fix, what well, you can, but you don't fix ribs one and two, and you almost never fix 11 and 12. So uh, ribs three through 10 are really what you're looking at. Rib three being very hard to reach. So oftentimes four through 10. And then if they're, uh, close to the sternum, then the method of getting to those is different than if they're close to the spine, for example. So whenever we consider rib plating, uh, we spend quite a bit of time looking at the anatomy of the fractures to see if they are amenable to that. And if we really think that they're a candidate, then we get 3D reconstructions of the chest wall. And those are done right down there in the CT scanner off of the same CT chest that was already obtained. They can do 3D reconstructions and those make it a lot easier to see where the fractures are and whether or not they're amenable to plating. And you know, the reason the, those first two or three ribs are not usually done, are they just so high it's hard to get at them? It's high and hard to get at them. Um, rib three is is already obscenely difficult to get to, even though people want to admit that it's really hard to get to. Um, I've seen a, a thoracic surgeon plate number two before. Haven't seen anything anyone do anything with rib one except resect it. Okay. Uh, but and then what about the last couple, eleven and twelve? Why, why don't you fix those? 
there are, those are kind of floating. And so it's thought uh, that uh, plating those wouldn't really contribute to uh, the stability of the chest wall very much, and that's not worth it essentially. So, so if one of them is misbehaving, like it's you know poking into a viscera or something, and it just really needs to not be there, then most of the time for those, it's easier to just resect those ribs than it is to, to bother plating them. Okay. So, I mean, that, I guess, links back to what we're trying to achieve here. Is the, let's see, are the goals, even theoretically, of fixing these ribs would be to reduce pain and therefore improve breathing, right? And then maybe to reduce any kind of secondary injury from very pokey, displaced ribs to the lung or maybe to the abdomen or vessels, things like that. Are those basically our two potential goals here? Yeah, and the, and it was that latter thing which is where it started, you know. So, you know, I'd said that it was something that was available decades ago but rarely used. Originally, you sort of had to have some method of doing it because, I mean, once in a while someone's chest will be caved in like an eggshell, you know, and, and the ribs are just so displaced and poking in on things that you just can't have it be like that. And so you have to do something. And so a lot, a lot of the first replatings were for that. And we realized over time, you know, that lesser degrees of chest wall injury could also be plated and that some of those people would then get off the ventilator quicker and they would generally recover quicker from their fractures if, if that were done. And so people began plating flail segments. And then, you know, because of these reasons later on, they began plating non-flail segments. And so that's probably the big area of interest right now. So if your chest wall is caved in and the ribs are poking into your lungs and your spleen, then no one really argues that that needs to be dealt with. But if you have, you know, some non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures, you know, and the pur purpose of the plating is to help with pain, you know, then which of those should be done? And that, that's really where the field is headed now. Okay, so let me let me summarize these indications and contraindications. Um, ribs one through probably three, you're not going to fix. Ribs eleven and twelve, you're not going to fix. The others are potentially on the table, and you would consider it um, if they were if there's just obvious like severe anatomic deformity or severe displacement where it really just appears at least radiographically or just kind of rationally <laughs> that these broken bones are, are at risk for or actively traumatizing important parts of the body. Um, and you would, let's see, not always fix a flail segment, but you would much more strongly consider it than if it were not a flail. I mean, is that? Right. And you can sort of predict, you know, which patients are going to head toward plating just by looking at their scans. Although that's not always uh, infallible. You know, just last week we had a couple of patients who had anatomically very compelling scans and we were wondering about, you know, when, when we might book those for plating. But, but it turned, you know, then it turned out that both of them did great, you know, and they're walking around the rooms and, and they're doing 1750 on their IS and, and they just didn't need it even though their scans certainly suggested that they might. So it sounds like the clinical picture is outside some kind of anatomic corner cases. 
how they look is the most important thing. If they're doing well, then they're not going to need anything. And if they're not doing well, then this becomes kind of closer and closer to the top of your considerations. Right. With a caveat that occasionally for people that have displaced fractures and they're, and they're doing well, like once in a while, the fractures will displace more over time. And so if we think that someone's at high risk for this, uh, then we'll, okay, then we'll have them get x-rays later on just to make sure this isn't happening. Oh, okay. So if they, they looked at risk for that, or maybe if they sort of are looking clinically worse, you might get some more imaging and see if they look different than they did on admission. And, uh, yes. And oftentimes that does show either that the fractures are worse or that more commonly that there's a larger effusion that needs to be dealt with. So how does the effusion play into this decision? That's a tricky one because, um, you know, the, the, the big concern obviously is that that'll get larger and they'll need uh, either a chest tube. Sometimes a chest tube will be good enough to drain that, but more commonly a thoracoscopic evacuation of that. You know, and so we want to time that. So if they're going to need that, it's nice to do any plating that needs to be done at the same time. And, oh, I see. So it's just a matter of either going to be in the OR getting surgery, so it makes sense to do them together, or or I suppose if they're already getting opened up in some way, that might lower your threshold to fix some ribs while you're at it. Right. You know, and and, and the reason I say that it's tricky is because the, the most recent chest wall injury society guidelines and a lot of our proto- protocols, including ours, really call for you to try to fixate ribs in the first three days if you can, thinking that the outcomes are better if you do it within the first three days. However, three days isn't really long enough in most cases to figure out whether or not the effusion is going to get larger and then they're going to need a thoracoscopy. So oftentimes a, a person's going to be six, seven days in before it's obvious that they're going to need a thoracoscopy. And so it's a, li- it's a little hard to time the time the fixation of ribs, you know, with that, just because you're looking at different time windows at times there. So you're, you're kind of usually attempting non-surgical management first, but you shouldn't let this this trial of non-surgical intervention stretch out more than a day, a couple days. When you're getting into three days, maybe you waited too long. And that's an area for debate. So the, because that's kind of a you know, that's kind of contradictory, right? So you're supposed to give them a trial of non-operative management, but yet at the same time, if you are going to operate, it's supposed to be within three days. So those two things are very hard to reconcile. And there are some people that try to say that the operation itself is harder after three days, you know, because scar tissue forms and it's harder to get the ribs reduced and so forth. And and there, there does come a point at which it is harder. I don't think it's three days. I think that you could do one of these at seven days and it's not dramatically harder than it is on day two. Okay. But you, d- you do have the goal kind of as you admit these people to keep it on your mind that if you're going to consider this, consider it early. Don't let them get stuck in this kind of morass of days and days of muddling through medical care without pulling the trigger. To an extent. And, and, and a lot of that depends on whether that, whether that effusion is present. So, you know, recently we had a case where I kind of stalled it beyond the three-day mark just because I, I thought that the effusion would get larger and act up, and, and in fact, it did. So I went and did the combination procedure six or seven days out. Um, wasn't what the guidelines would have called for, but again, I personally, I think the three days is a little bit too rigid. Walk us through kind of at least broadly 
the technique to doing this. Um, most people listening not being surgeons, but just kind of in general, you know, what's your approach to these? What are you actually doing to the ribs and so on? Actually, the first question, believe it or not, is who's going to do it? So um, right now I'd say it's probably most common for the trauma surgeons themselves to do it now, now that enough of them have learned how. Um, but there are places in which orthopedic surgeons have done it. Uh, there are places where the trauma surgeon comes in and provides soft tissue exposure and then the orthopedic surgeon puts on the actual plates. And then there are a few places where cardiothoracic does it. Um, but I would say those two things are decreasing and, and by and large, most places that plate ribs are, it's probably being done by the trauma team. Um, and so the, so let's just say that that's who's doing the plating in this case. The big decision and what we all agonize over is, is how to, how to get to the fractured ribs. And, and that's where the 3D reconstruction CT scans come in. Because depending on where the fractures are and, and which ribs they are, there are several different incisions that you can use. You know, one of them is just a regular lateral thoracotomy incision, for example. But other ones are like a vertical one next to the spine, for example. And then there's this hockey stick incision and so forth. And, and they're challenging because they aren't incisions that we make for anything else. And they're, they're not exposures that we do anything else for. You know, and so it takes... You know, those of us who do it, it takes some time to get used to these exposures because, again, we're not doing them in any other part of our practice but this. So, so in this case, to get to ribs four through seven in the posterior lateral, you know, d dimension like you described for this case, you know, it, it involves an, an incision and an approach that I, they wouldn't use for any for anything else. And so that so that's where all the mental energy one of these cases comes in. So for us, for example, whenever we get to the point that we're actually going to book one of these for plating, we'll always have at least two or three of us that do plating, you know, review the case in our conference and we'll pull up the imaging and we'll ponder what sort of the exposure that we want to do for this, just to, just to be sure that we all agree that we're going to be able to get to them. Uh, because there's nothing worse than, than doing one of these exposures, finding out that it wasn't the right one and we can't really reach the ribs that we need to reach, that's miserable. So I want to avoid that at all costs. And I imagine you're also planning on what fractures to fix because you said you're not necessarily fixing every broken rib or every fracture on those ribs. Exactly. So, you know, and to, because for chest wall, I mean, obviously you'd like to fix them all if you could, but you don't necessarily have to, um, fix them all just to provide stability of the chest wall. So, for example, if these ribs were very posterior, then there's a posterior sort of vertical incision that we would use. And if I could get most of the ribs that way, but there's maybe one or two that I can't get to because they're anterior, then I'm not necessarily going to flip the person over and do a whole other incision just for those. You know, if we feel that we can get to enough of them to provide enough stability of the chest wall then, then through one incision, and that'll usually be good enough. Okay, so there's a balance here between what you can get to anatomically, you know, how many incisions do you want to make to expose these sites, and then which fractures, I guess, look, look the worst, which are the most displaced or problematic. And I imagine if there's a flail segment, you want to get that segment stabilized. 
Right. And then, you know, once you actually get down to the fractures themselves, you know, then, you know, we're using a whole series of tools and, you know, plates and so forth that, again, we don't use anywhere else in our practice. So you, you have to learn how to bend the plates. There's a plate bender. And you have to learn how to, you know, how to reduce the ribs, which is harder than it sounds. And so this is a sort of a unique skill set. You know, orthopedists are used to this stuff. Uh, we aren't. And so it, it takes a while to get used to it. And just, just as an example of that, so you can bend a plate in one direction, but you're not supposed to then bend it. So let's say you bend it too much. You're not supposed to then bend it back. In the same way that you can break a paperclip by bending it back and forth, the rib plates are made weaker by doing that. So it actually ends up taking quite a bit of time to uh, get them to curve just right um, because you want them laying on the ribs. And of course, you're going to have imaging afterwards. And so any little imperfection in the plates is going to be just right there for you to see. And, and we don't like seeing that. So we really do spend quite a bit of time getting the plates to lay just so. Where do these plates lie on the ribs? I mean, are they on a specific anatomic surface or does it depend on the rib? There's different versions of of hardware. So, I mean, I'm familiar with the one that we have, but, but m most of the time it's sort of on the superior part of the rib where it's thicker. You know, and, the, and the, they're actually pre-made for certain ribs, so... They make an effort to contour them according to the the way that ribs are usually contoured. So when you open one of these sets, like there'll be a one plate for rib three and four, and there'll be another one for five, six, and seven, another one for eight and nine. And, and when you look at them, they look different. There's a different colored plates for left side versus right side. So you, you pick the one of interest, you know, cut it down usually, and and contour it, and then you um, drill it in. And what, you know, we talked about when to do this, when not to do this, obviously a consideration has to be the, the risks of doing that. Other than the inevitable risks of having anesthesia, what are, are complications that can result from this procedure? I mean, there's all the usual stuff, you know, which are, you know, bleeding, infection, and so on. And that's finally been looked at in a, in a more formal sense. They did a and I'm, I'm blanking on the author, but they did a, a survey of the major studies looking at complications, and they, and they were pretty low, actually, less than 10% of complications of all kinds. And so the, you know, the it's uncommon, for example, for the plates to have to come out later on for pain. It's it's, it's pretty uncommon for a plate to pull out and have to come out. It's uh, it's uncommon for them to become infected and have to come out. And that's and that's even true when you think, for example, if you had to do a thoracoscopy and put chest tubes and so forth, that those would be a little bit contaminated and potentially contaminate the hardware and hardware has to come out. It actually ends up being pretty uncommon with rib plating, at least so far. Okay. So th there's the risks of any procedure here, but not a lot of, you know, real specific risks for this. Maybe probably similar to maybe other orthopedic procedures. You would not consider this as risky as, you know, maybe a laparotomy no, you know, and that I mean, the, I mean, honestly, I would say the biggest risk, if you will, is that um, you end up doing the plating, and it just doesn't look as good as you'd like. You know, they because you can, again, you can see it on the imaging. So sometimes you just look at post-op imaging, and boy, that's just a beautiful fixation. You really got it all. 
and, and other times it just doesn't look quite as good. And that's probably not a complication per se, but um, it's probably the most common thing that actually happens. But but uh, it is, we compare it to laparotomy, it is surprising actually. So when you do one of these, especially if you use the posterior lateral thoracotomy incision, which is very common to use, it's just this huge incision that they get, 18 and 24 inches long, but they really do remarkably well pain-wise. They're, they're just they're very few incisions that you'd make elsewhere on the body, like for laparotomy and so forth, uh, where the pain is, you know, l less than pre-op, you know, as it is for a rib fracture fixation oftentimes. You know, they really do remarkably well with these big wounds uh, because the ribs have been fixated. Much better than right. At least that pain is improved. Hopefully, so you would. I mean, your goal after you do these is that you know they wake up and they're really they're feeling and breathing better right away than before. Right, and you know, and despite the long skin incision, we um, most of us anyway take you know the effort to not divide latissimus or you know divide any of the muscles. So you know the function of the chest wall stays pretty intact. Um, okay. Yeah, you don't want to chew through some muscles that they need for their breathing. I mean, you can if it's absolutely. I mean, they do it for open thoracotomy at times, I and mean, theoretically do it for rib fixation. But but um, most of the time we work around them, which is harder work. I mean, these are physically taxing procedures, regardless of what anyone might tell you. Like you're just drained after one of these. Um, but and a lot of it's just the heavy retraction working around the muscles and so forth. But we can usually do it. Where does the evidence stand on this? I mean, certainly many people in many centers are just not plating ribs. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't want to say that it's the standard of care, but it's certainly pretty standard care in many places. And some do. It almost seems kind of a regional or, or cultural thing and really just are there maybe surgeons who are happen to be doing it in a particular place. But where are we? I mean, have there been studies that show you know, patient-oriented benefits from this, such as I don't know, less mortality, less risk of being intubated or shorter times in the hospital, or it, really any kind of benefit, you know, whether that's some surrogate. Um, are there any data showing harm? I mean, where are we with this? Well, again, that's an evolution. You know, there, there's, there's some. There's a, a recent one by the Chesswell Injury Society, for example, that argues that plating in non-flail segments, you know, is beneficial, and then, and, but their outcome measurement was a pain score at two weeks. And so that's a little bit murky, you know, because again, you're, you know, the outcomes that you're looking for are hard to measure. You know, mortality isn't going to help you really. You know, so ventilator-free days, you know, which is what you might try to use for the sicker patients is notoriously difficult to use just because of all the confounding factors. And then, and then anything that has to do with measuring pain is always going to be difficult. So it's, it's become you know, somewhat difficult to actually provide hardcore numbers that the scientists want to see, you know, and to justify that fixation should be done, you know, to, to go along with the, the clinical impression that we get, you know, so that when you actually do these, it's just that there's obviously an improvement in a lot of the patients. You know, and so how do we, how we translate that into actual data that can satisfy, you know, PICO scores and grade methodology is uh, challenging. Okay. Now, maybe there's no data on this either, but at least in your opinion, it, it, 
you know, a procedure that is is done sporadically in, in different places, it, it always raises the question of whether, you know, everyone's doing the same procedure. Do you think this is the sort of thing that requires, you know, a fair amount of practice and volume to do it effectively? And, you know, if, if someone is, is doing them very rarely, maybe they shouldn't be doing them at all. Is this the sort of thing where we should be transferring to, you know, higher volume centers for it if it's to be done in, you know, community hospitals or even larger places that just don't do this? It should be on their, on their radar that if they think it's indicated, maybe you send the patient to across town where they're plating ribs. Or is this something more straightforward where even if you don't do it very often, it's not that hard and the, the benefit is is kind of lower hanging there and, you know, there's not much risk to it, so why not everyone do it? That's something that hasn't really been formally addressed by any statement, although we all know it's a factor. So the and I would say we we try to not transfer that many people just for rib fixation. But, in, you know, because most of the people are going to be in a trauma center already anyway. And so usually the better approach is to, for every center, to have a few people that do it. So for us, for example, we have eight, eight trauma surgeons and other groups may have, you know, 10 or 12, for example. And, and within a group of 10, you might have three or four people that do plating. You know, there's not enough numbers for all 10 to be able to do it and to be able to know what they're doing. So you, you ideally would, um, you know, identify a subgroup of those that do. So for us, that's four people and whatever plating case comes up, you know, there's, it's almost always the case that one of the four of us is around, you know, and and so we'll be the ones that do it. And so in a sense, it becomes kind of like, you know, ERCPs are for gastroenterologists that, you know, there's not enough ERCPs that every single one of them can do them and, and keep their numbers up. Now, there's not a specific number, you know, that people have. If I had to guess, I would say that if, you, you know, if a person does, you know, maybe five of them a year. I mean, ideally, you'd like to do maybe one a month, but five or six a year is probably good enough to to be able to say that you can plate the next person that comes in. Okay, so in all but the highest volume places, it would make sense to kind of focus these procedures down to a subset of your staff. And as you said, maybe that would mean not necessarily trauma surgeons doing it, but maybe your orthopods or thoracic surgeons if if that's where the, the interest is and the coverage is. Yeah, and, and there's a dirty secret to that So the that no one talks about. So if you're familiar, or if listeners are familiar with the concept of RVUs, you know, relative value units, everything that you do is described as a certain number of RVUs, and that's what reimbursement in the U.S. is based on. So for whatever reason, the powers that be declared that a rib fixation should be 7.5 RVUs, or something like that, 7.5, which is less than an appendectomy and well less than a cholecystectomy. So for a case that requires a lot more training is a lot longer, you know, and, and is much more involved, the, you know, the RVUs are, are low, you know, and, you know, most of us aren't bothered by that too much. But, um, you know, when it comes to trying to sell that to orthopedists, hey, would you like to do these four-hour-long cases, 
you know, that are going to take your entire afternoon and you're going to get 7.5 RVUs for it. You know, the, neither the orthopedist nor the cardiac surgeons are super interested in that most of the time. So it really falls to the people, you know, who are actually rounding on the patients, which are, you know, us. And so it would make sense in most places for the trauma surgeons to be doing the okay, most of the So plating. it's hard to sell to some other service that's not already involved a lot of the time. Right. And, you know, and no, of course, no one will, you know, the stuff I just said, no one will say, say that with words. But, uh, and they can't fail to notice that, you know, when they ponder whether or not they want to take this on, you know, that, that really it's, I mean, it's, it's for the good of the patients. It's certainly not for the good of one's practice. Right. Maybe they're busy that day. <laughs> okay. All right. Final thoughts. What, what do you want us to take away knowing about rib fractures and, and perhaps in particular uh, surgical fixation of rib fractures? Um, what are the kind of key learning points for this problem? Mostly that it's a, uh, you know, rib fractures are a real disease and a real problem. You know, it's not very glamorous, but um, it really does affect the patient's clinical course and certainly their quality of life. And for anyone that's broken ribs before, you know, that's two to three months of, you know, very unpleasant life until that heals up. And uh, that for a, a small percentage of the patients, it's still less than 10%, but for those that it benefits, that rib fixation does exist uh, and that it, it, it can be helpful. And then as an aside, we, I'll quickly mention that a couple of studies, one in here and one in the Netherlands, where even post-cardiac arrest patients you know, who are often left with badly broken ribs and who survive you know, may occasionally be candidates as well even though it's not trauma per se, but, but so it may crop up now and then in, in that subset of patients. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll call it quits there. Remember, everyone, this is all just the opinions of the participants here, not of our respective institutions, and it's just meant to be general educational content, not specific medical advice. Thanks for joining. Thank you.